Okay, can you hear me? Um, before I start, I just have to ask, can I drink that water? Has anybody drunk it? It's just that I've spent the best part of three weeks giving my germs away. And like, I just really don't want to take anybody else's on board. Is there, is there death in the glass? <laughs> I sure hope not. Right. Yeast. The title of today's talk is Yeast. Um, and normally when I do a talk, I hang it on bullet points or a word or an anagram or something to kind of keep it going. But I'm going to do something different today. I'm just going to go with the flow of the scripture. Because of how the scripture is working and how it's building, there's no bullet points. I'm simply going to follow the flow of the scripture. So it's going to be a little bit different today. But basically, yeast. When we hear of yeast in the Bible, it should register with us influence. Good influence, good yeast, but also bad influence, bad yeast. Jesus is kind of touching on both in this bit of scripture. A couple of chapters earlier, in chapter 13, we actually had the parable of the yeast. And Jesus explains that how, if you take a small amount of yeast and you mix it with 60 pounds of flour, what an amazing amount of bread it will supply you with. The, in, the, the, the influence can be positive. Things can grow and be positive. But Jesus then closes this bit of talking with the yeast of the Pharisees, and he says, beware. And he says there's negative influence. There can be the wrong influence out of there. Jesus echoes the positive yeast by starting by feeding the 4,000. He's talking of a positive multiplication. He's showing them. But as I say, we do see the flip side of the coin. So this is called yeast. Why is, why is Jesus talking about these things right now? And I feel the best way to answer that is to give an overview of these chapters at the moment, of these particular, this particular block of scripture. Jesus has been walking around, teaching, preaching, feeding thousands, healing the lame, the blind, the deaf. And it's all building. It's actually all building up to, up to a pinnacle point next week in the scripture. The atmosphere is building. He's doing all the happy stuff. He's going around and preaching and teaching and healing people. And it's a real feel-good factor. But it changes next week. It changes in the scripture next week. Because once Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, we hit the serious stuff. Jesus then starts openly talking about crucifixion. We hit the road and it's the serious stuff. This is what it's about. The atmosphere changes, the climax breaks, the crest of the wave. Next week, the teaching starts to be different. Peter's confession of faith is the climax of years, months, years of instruction. And we're starting to really, Jesus is getting them to, to focus on the real issue, what's going on. Jesus knows about the resurrection plan. It wasn't kind of sprung on him in Gethsemane. And the reality is, he knows about the crucifixion. He knows about the resurrection. But he also knows that the Sadducees don't believe in resurrection. 
They were sad, you see. That's how I remember it. So he knows that ahead, he's ahead of the game. He knows that there's a clash of opinion. He knows that the the Sadducees will be teaching that there's no such thing as resurrection. But he knows he is going to be resurrected for salvation. (coughs) So when he's teaching, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, he's getting the disciples to focus on him. He's warning them. He's preparing them for this clash of opinions. So as an overview, in this block of scripture, we start with positive multiplication, but we end up with the warning, be careful. So as I said, there's no bullet points, I'm just going to go through the scripture. I just felt it worked best. Jesus starts with feeding 4,000. He uses the example of the fishes and the loaves to physically show multiplication. What he shows physically with the bread, he wants the disciples to do with the bread of life. He wants them to do with his word, with his message. He's shown the physical, there's those loaves, there's all those people fed. But he wants them to get the spiritual lesson from that. It was a very practical thing that he did, you know, the the people were hungry. But there was a spiritual message behind it. The message of his salvation, he wants that to grow. He wants it to go far. He wants the 12 disciples to feed people spiritually. A little bit can go a long way. And it's the same now. A word, a sentence, a phone call. These little things, they can actually build. We can speak into people's lives. The reality is one word, Jesus. That makes all the difference. And we can speak that into people's lives and we can carry on with that multiplication. Where the 12 disciples started off, look how many millions of Christians there are. We can carry that on. It's a little bit lost on us, but Jesus was being quite subversive when he was talking about yeast and, and, and giving it a good light. Because through a lot of the Old Testament, as Death in the Bot showed, a lot of the Old Testament, yeast was associated negatively. It was associated with the wrong kind of influence. In the scripture, we then have this tricky part where the Pharisees and Sadducees are saying, show us a sign, show us a sign. The reality is they're looking for a charge to bring against Jesus. And he knows that. He knows what their game is. He knows that the Pharisees and the Sadducees really honour their tradition above the word of God. He knows the game that they're playing. And I've put in my notes the irony, show us a sign. You know, if I read verse 31 here, the people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking and the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel. Mark and I at New Wine the one year, we, um, we witnessed this lady, and she was blind, and she'd been blind for years, and she was desperate for prayer. And she got up, and she got onto the stage, and they pray, everybody prayed and prayed and prayed, and she had her eyes closed, and she opened her eyes, and after years of being blind, she was healed. And they went and called for her pastor. I mean, there was between five and 7,000 people there sat watching. They went and called for her pastor. And I, I remember, actually, he came up. And, and the first thing was, she said, well, you, you sound much better than you look. You're not as good looking as you sound. <laughs> and I thought, well, in front of all those people, fancy saying that. But, you know, and then, and then I, I, I recall her throwing a stick down. And, and she'd, she'd sent a letter of complaint to an MP. 
And um, she'd complained because she'd been waiting a, a ridiculous amount of time for this, gui- this guide dog for the blind. And she had a meeting set up the following week. And she, she stood there and she said, this is going to be an interesting conversation next week when I sit in front of this chap. But when she walked off the stage, and she did, she threw a stick down and she walked off the stage, the, we praised like you cannot imagine. We were hoarse. We were, you could not thank God enough. To have seen the kingdom of heaven break through, to, it was tangible, it, the excitement, it was ecstatic. And the irony is, that, that, was one, that was one miracle. But you know, Jesus has been doing numerous things. He's been feeding, you know, 5,000 last week. 4,000 this week will feed. You know, he's been saying to the lame, get up and walk. He's been opening the eyes of the blind. The level of excitement, I don't think we really get it from these pages, but he would have been up there. You know, it would have been through the roof. It would have just been mad. And the Pharisees and Sadducees are saying, well, show us a sign. Show us a sign that you're from heaven. Come on, prove it. And I put down, you know, the irony. And Jesus is a bit dismissive. Because he he just says, well, you know, we know the saying, red sky at night, shepherds delight. You can see see that stuff, but you can't see the big stuff. And he says to them, you got the sign of Jonah. And he says that because the point of Jonah is Jonah was a sign that salvation is universally offered. Up until then, the 12 tribes kind of felt it was a bit of a private club. But Jonah's story is no, salvation is for everybody. Jesus came. His crucifixion, his resurrection, his message of salvation is for everybody. Jonah spends three days in the belly of the whale. Jesus will spend three parts of three days in the tomb. Jonah was spat up on some beautiful beach somewhere. Jesus was resurrected and brought back to life. And Jesus is saying to them, you're asking me for a sign, but you're missing it. I'm it. The sign's pointing to me. As I said, through Jesus, salvation is universally offered. And Jesus is basically saying, I'm in front of you. Look, I'm in front of you. We then move on to this negative influence. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. Possibly triggered by what's just happened. Probably just, you just felt, bring it up. Here Jesus is warning the disciples to beware of their false teaching. He knows this clash of opinions that's going to take place when he's resurrected. When the disciples see him walking around in that upper room, when they meet him again after the event, he knows there's a massive, massive clash of opinions coming. As I say, the whole scripture is building up and then next week when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah and it's like, I know who you are. You are the son of God. I know who you are. Once he does that, it changes. The atmosphere is the serious stuff. I put down here, Jesus knows what lies ahead, him in a tomb, and then I underlined, but only for three days. Only for three days. So what's the relevance of this scripture today? It's interesting to look at. It's interesting to think what it was like to be there, to have witnessed it, to have imagined it. But what's the relevance today? What's our yeast of our Pharisees today? Well, we are surrounded by multiple spiritualities. 
everywhere. But Jesus said, I am the way. What he didn't say was, I'm one of the ways. He said, I am the way. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, those that believe in me. In the um, play, Death in the Pot, interesting story that. The reality is after the showdown at Baal, Elisha and Elijah, Elisha in this case, they would collect a group of people and they would kind of have these little schools of ministry and they would teach them of the things of God and then they would send them out. A bit like Jesus and the disciples, teaching them things and sending them out. And what would happen was they would commune together, they'd eat together, they'd, they would spend, I don't know, weeks or months, however long, with Elisha. And what had happened was they'd eaten together and they'd gone out and they'd picked herbs and gourds and whatever and, they, and they'd come back and they'd stewed them. And you could say, well, why put that scripture in the Bible? Why put that story in the Bible? But there's a spiritual lesson and the spiritual lesson is they didn't know what they were putting in the pot. They were just putting anything in and they should have been guarded. And the spiritual lesson for us is we should know what we are putting into us. In other words, look at the other side of influence. What is influencing us? And that was the message in that. Guard what goes in. Multiply the good stuff out. Guard what goes in. Multiply the good stuff out. There were 12 disciples. Look how many millions of Christians there are. We can continue to grow. I'd like you to watch a video now, um, a little YouTube clip. This is a true story. Um, I'm sure a lot of you will have seen it before about Mr. Ganoa. Um, I just felt that this video clip summed up much better than any words the effectiveness of yeast and how a little bit can make a big difference. So if we can get that up on um, behind me. As I say, it's true. A number of years ago, in a Baptist church in Crystal Palace in southern London, the Sunday morning service was closing and a stranger stood up at the back, raised his hand, he said, excuse me, pastor, can I share a little testimony? The pastor looked at his watch, he said, you've got three minutes. And this man proceeded, he said, I just moved into this area, I used to live in another part of London. I came from Sydney in Australia. And just a few months back, I was visiting some relatives and I was walking down George Street. You know where George Street is in Sydney? It runs from the business hub out to the rocks, the colonial area. And he said, a strange little white-haired man stepped out of a shop doorway, put a pamphlet in my hand and he said, excuse me, sir, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? He said, I was astounded by those words. Nobody had ever told me that. I thanked him courteously, and all the way on British Airlines, back to Heathrow, this puzzled me. I called a friend who lived in this new area, where I'm living now, and thank God he was a Christian, he led me to Christ, and I'm a Christian and I want a fellowship here. And Baptists love testimonies like it. Everyone applauded and welcomed him into the fellowship. That Baptist pastor flew to Adelaide in Australia the next week, and ten days later, in the middle of a three-day series in a Baptist church in Adelaide, 
a woman came to him for counseling and he wanted to establish where she stood with Christ. And she said, I used to live in Sydney. And just a couple of months back, I was visiting friends in Sydney, doing some last minute shopping down George Street. And a strange little white haired man, elderly man, stepped out of a shop doorway, offered me a pamphlet and said, excuse me, ma'am, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? She said, I was disturbed by those words. When I got back to Adelaide, I knew this Baptist church was on the next block from me and I sought out the pastor and he led me to Christ. So, sir, I'm telling you that I am a Christian. Now, this London pastor was now very puzzled. Twice, within a fortnight, he'd heard the same testimony. He then flew to preach in the Mount Pleasant Baptist Church in Perth. And when his teaching series was over, the senior elder of that church took him out for a meal. And he said, mate, how'd you get saved? He said, I grew up in this church from the age of 15 through Boys Brigade. Never made a commitment to Jesus, just hopped on the bandwagon like everybody else. And because of my business ability, grew up to a place of influence. I was on a business outing in Sydney just three years ago. And an obnoxious, spiteful little man stepped out of a stop shop doorway, offered me a religious pamphlet, cheap junk, and accosted me with a question. Excuse me, sir, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? He said, I tried to tell him I was a Baptist elder. He wouldn't listen to me. He said, I was seething with anger all the way home on Qantas to, to Perth. He said, I told my pastor, thinking he would sympathize with me, and my pastor agreed. He had been disturbed for years, knowing that I didn't have a relationship with Jesus, and he was right. And my pastor led me to Jesus just three years ago. Now, this London preacher flew back to the UK and was speaking at the Keswick Convention in the Lake District. And he threw in these three testimonies. At the close of his teaching session, four elderly pastors came up and said, we got saved between 25 and 35 years ago, respectively, through that little man on George Street giving us a tract and asking us that question. He then flew the following week to a similar Keswick Convention in the Caribbean, to missionaries. And he shared the testimonies. At the close of his teaching session, three missionaries came up and said, we got saved between 15 and 25 years ago, respectively, through that little man's testimony and asking us that same question on George Street in Sydney. Coming back to London, he stopped outside Atlanta, Georgia, to speak at a Naval Chaplain's Convention. And when his three days of revving these Naval Chaplains up, over a thousand of them, in soul winning, the Chaplain General took him out for a meal. And he said, how'd you become a Christian? He said, well, it was miraculous. I was a rating on a United States battleship and I lived a reprobate life. We were doing exercises in the South Pacific and we docked in Sydney Harbour for replenishments. We hit King's Cross with a vengeance. I got blind drunk. I got on the wrong bus, got off in George Street. And <laughs> as I got off the bus, I thought it was a ghost. This elderly white-haired man jumped in front of me, pushed a pamphlet in my hand and said, Sailor, are you saved? If you die tonight, you're going to heaven. He said, the fear of God hit me immediately. I was shocked sober and ran back to the battleship, sought out the chaplain. The chaplain led me to Christ. And I soon began to prepare for the ministry under his guidance. And here I am in charge of over a thousand chaplains and we're bent on soul winning today. That London preacher, six months later, flew to do a convention for 5,000 Indian missionaries in a remote corner of northeastern India. And at the end, the Indian missionary in charge, a humble little man, took him home to his humble little home for a simple meal. And he said, how did you, as a Hindu, come to Christ? He said, I was in a very privileged position. I worked for the Indian diplomatic mission. And I traveled the world. And I am so glad for the forgiveness of Christ and his blood covering my sin, because I'd be very embarrassed if people found out what I got into. He said, one bout of diplomatic service took me to Sydney. 
and I was doing some last minute shopping laden with parcels of toys and clothing for my children walking down George Street and this courteous little white haired man stepped out in front of me offered me a pamphlet and said excuse me sir are you saved if you die tonight are you going to heaven he said I thanked him very much but this disturbed me I got back to my town, I sought out the Hindu priest and he couldn't help me, but he gave me some advice. He said, just to satisfy your curious mind, nothing else, go and talk to the missionary in the mission house at the end of the road, and that was fatal advice. He said, because that day the missionary led me to Christ, I quit Hinduism immediately, and then began to study for the ministry. I left the diplomatic service, and here I am, by God's grace, in charge of all these missionaries, and we are winning hundreds of thousands of people to Christ. Well, eight months later, that Crystal Palace Baptist pastor was ministering in Sydney, in Gymea, southern suburb of Sydney. And he said to the Baptist minister, do you know a little man, an elderly little man who witnesses and hands out tracts on George Street? And he said, I do. His name is Mr. Genor, G-E-N-O-R. But I don't think he does it anymore. He's too frail and elderly. The man said, I want to meet him. Two nights later, they went around this little apartment, knocked on the door, and this tiny, frail little man opened the door. He sat them down, made them some tea, and he was so friendly, he was slopping tea into the saucer as he shook it. And as he sat with them, this London preacher told him all these accounts over the previous three years. This little man sat with tears running down his cheeks. He said, my story goes like this. He said, I was a rating on an Australian warship, and I lived a reprobate life, and in a crisis, I really hit the wall, and one of my colleagues, whom I gave literal hell, was there to help me. He led me to Jesus, and the change in my life was night to day in 24 hours, and I was so grateful to God. I promised God that I would share Jesus in a simple witness with at least 10 people a day, as God gave me strength. Sometimes I was ill, I couldn't do it, but I made up for it for other times. I wasn't paranoid about it, but I have done this for over 40 years, and in my retirement years, the best place was on George Street. There were hundreds of people. I got lots of rejections. But a lot of people courteously took the tracks and he said in 40 years of doing this i've never heard of one single person coming to jesus until today do you know i would say that has to be commitment that has to be just sheer gratitude and love for jesus to do that not hearing of any results margarita did a little count that's 146,100 people that simple little non-charismatic baptist man influenced somehow to Jesus and I believe what God was showing that Baptist minister was the tip of the tip of the tip of the tip of this iceberg goodness knows how many more had been arrested for Christ and were doing huge jobs out in the mission field Mr. Genor died two weeks later and can you imagine the reward he went home to in heaven I doubt if his face would ever have appeared on Charisma magazine I doubt if there would ever have been a write-up with a photograph in Billy Graham's Decision magazine, as beautiful as those magazines are. Nobody except a little group of Baptists in southern Sydney knew about Mr. Genor. But I'll tell you, his name was famous in heaven. Heaven knew Mr. Genor. And you can imagine the welcome and the red carpet and the fanfare he went home to when he arrived in glory. So, take the good stuff, take the message of Jesus, multiply it out. Guard against the influence of the bad stuff. 
To conclude, what habits could you adopt? Petrol station. Every time you went to the petrol station, are you brave enough to mention Jesus? Walking down the high street buying your fruit and veg on a Saturday, are you brave enough to do it? Mm. Work colleagues. I was listening to somebody the other day and they were saying that every single time they went through a supermarket checkout, they asked the cashier if they'd met Jesus, if they knew Jesus. And I thought, wow, you know, I must go into Sainsbury's 10 times a week. You know, and, and this was every single time, every single time they went through a supermarket checkout. And it wouldn't just be the cashier, it would also be the people, because always be, in Aldi, there's always people waiting, there'd always be queue. And I thought, it challenged me. I thought, am I brave enough to do that? But that was just another little, that was another Mr. Gnaw somewhere, basically. So I just want to close with some questions. I'm sorry if it's gone over a bit. Are you guarding against the model equivalent of the yeast of the Pharisees? Are you being influenced by the right things and guarding against the wrong things? Equally as importantly, are you multiplying that out? The message of Jesus' resurrection is the good yeast. We've got to take it out there. Are you sharing his word? Are you being good yeast in society? Are you being a Mr. Gnaw? But perhaps the most important question is, are you saved? And if you die, will you go to heaven tonight? Amen.